NetCredit is here to say yes, because you're more than a credit score. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partners. NetCredit. Credit to the people. Politicians, Pod Save the UK has a message for you. Chat shit, get banged. campaign to stop politicians lying starts today. We think that our elected representatives lying, misleading, willfully misrepresenting, also known as chatting shit where I'm from, should have consequences. And that's the getting banged bit. It's metaphorical. We're not condoning actual violence, of course. But we do think something needs to be done. MPs were chosen to lead, not mislead us. So join us in our fight to keep politicians honest. Welcome to Pod Save the UK. I'm Nish Kumar. I'm Coco Khan. How are you, Coco? Justice for Finland. Justice for... Oh, is this a Eurovision? (laughs) This is Eurovision, yeah. Now, I do apologise. I was at a wedding (laughs) the entire of Saturday, so I didn't even see one lick of it. Oh, well... How was it? It was amazing. It was amazing. I was up on my feet. It was like a penalty shootout. It was really <laughs> tense because you didn't know who was going to win right until the very last where, where minute. Where did you watch it? Were you at home? I was at home. <laughs> <laughs> I was at home in my pajamas, just standing like around the TV, shaking, <laughs> trembling with rage. So you you feel that an incorrect choice was made? I feel okay. I'm really conscious that this episode is all about misinformation and people taking responsibility for spreading lies and there being consequences. Yeah, that's right. We've got a person who's a professional fact checker coming in. So we better, you know, we better have our facts straight. So think about what you're about to say. Okay. So, okay. Well, I'm going to say it anyway. I'm going to say it anyway. Consider this an amnesty of truth for a moment. Okay, fine. Isn't it convenient that Sweden won all, pretty much won every single jury vote. Yeah. Finland pretty much won all of the people's vote. Right. But the juries won out. Conveniently, that means that Sweden is now going to host the next Eurovision. Sweden, by the way, just for context, in the Eurovision geopolitics is a disco superpower. Yeah. And now they are going to host next year because they've won. Yeah. Happens to be, happens to be the 50th anniversary of ABBA winning the Eurovision. How neat that all fits together. You can just imagine what the show's going to be like, can't you? I'm just saying, isn't it convenient? I'm just saying. The, I didn't, <laughs> of all of the things I thought that we were going to start this show with, I thought we'll have a nice relaxed chat about Eurovision before we start talking about, you know, people not being able to afford their rent and politicians <laughs> lying to us. And now you've gone full, like, Eurovision <laughs> conspiracy. You've gone Euronon. You've gone <laughs> full Euronon. I, I should basically have a tinfoil hat on right now. But, you know, look, whenever I accept the result, I accept the result. But I tell you what, there is going to be a moment during the sort of festival season where someone is going to drop that Finland tune and I am going to go bananas. I'm going to lose everything. (laughs) (laughs) Back to our episode. Yeah, we're going to be talking about misleading statements, dodgy stats and downright lies, the stuff that makes you and I uh, annoyed with uh, politicians. So, uh, Coco, in our bonus episode where we talked to the hosts of Pod Save America, our founders, our fathers, we said... We introduced them to the phrase chat shit get banged. Yes, which people will know if they listen to 
urban music, if they're football fans, obviously famously Jamie Vardy said it in 2016 and kind of catapulted it into the public consciousness. And if you want to hear some Americans have be confronted by that <laughs> phrase, uh, please do listen to the bonus episode uh, with the Pod Save America host with John, John and Tommy. It's a very fun listen. <laughs> it is a very uh, fun listen. It's on the listen. feed right now. But, you know, on a serious note, you don't have to, you don't have to be from Dagenham, the daggers as we call it, yeah. to know you cannot be spouting rubbish and there not be a thumping to come in your way. We've actually, we've actually had a tweet from an American listener uh, who's uh, at Ben Cowherd on Twitter who says the phrase chat shit get banged isn't totally unheard of here in the States. I've heard the Americanized version and talk shit get hit before. <laughs> Okay, all right. So, 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 you know, they, they weren't unfamiliar with it. I like these. I like that. I like that. I, I, I want to hear other versions now. Please send us your version of that from Sweden or Finland or anyone else that participated. So we'll be launching Chat Shit Get Banged later in the show with a bit of help from Fact Checkers Full Fact. Coming up next, though, is help finally at hand for Generation Rent. So the government has finally made good on Theresa May's promise that we all get to run through fields with abandon. Not quite that one, not quite that one. Uh, she made a promise back in 2019 and it's delivered what is being called the biggest shakeup of the private rented sector in England in a generation. There are 4.4 million households privately renting in the UK. That's around 11 million people who, under the current law, as it stands anyway, uh, yeah. could wake up one morning and find themselves being evicted through no fault of their own on the whim of their landlord. According to Shelter, the loss of a private tenancy is a leading trigger of homelessness in England. Yeah, it's um, the Renters Reform Bill and uh, one of the key uh, promises of the bill is that it's going to bring an end to those no-fault evictions but also improve renters' rights by improving the conditions of private rental homes and giving tenants more power to keep pets and also contest unfair rent increases. It, you know, it's desperately needed. Uh, given the way that housing has gone uh, in the last sort of 20-odd uh, years, uh, the number of households renting more than doubled between 2001 and 2021, according to the census data. And even more recent than 2021, demands for rentals after the pandemic are up 50% on the five-year average, coinciding, unfortunately, with a fall in the stock of rental homes. So in terms of the actual average cost, uh, the average monthly rents outside London hit a record high of £1,190 per month this year. In London, perhaps unsurprisingly, it's higher. Um, the high is £2,501 per month as an average monthly rent. And in terms of the conditions of some of these houses, uh, unfortunately, we've seen a string of news stories that show that a lot of these houses are not up to a livable standard. And uh, according to figures from uh, the City Hall and the Evening Standard, uh, landlords in London receive £3.5 billion a year for non-decent homes, which is an official term, meaning the properties are dangerous, cold or dilapidated. So, I mean, this is this is sort of the real crisis yes, of our absolutely. generation, really. The I'm surprised it hasn't been featured more highly on the agenda. Although, should I be surprised given half the uh, half the front bench are landlords? That's probably not the correct. It's not quite, the numbers aren't right, but you are <laughs> correct in terms of there's the, an unfortunate optics to this. Because obviously this is not a new crisis. Mm. And look, it does feel 
like there is a conflict of interest at work here, given that uh, re- due to research from 38 Degrees, who are a pressure group, we know that 87 MPs are landlords, 68 Tories, 16 Labour, five cabinet ministers are, are, are landlords. Uh, the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, has declared that he operates seven flats in Southampton. The champion landlord uh, is Nick Fletcher, the Tory MP for Don Valley, who has 10 rental properties. Wow. It, I mean... At what point does your side hustle simply become your hustle? <laughs> it, 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 I mean, it does start, it does start to feel like for Nick Fletcher, his like bit on the side is his job as a member of parliament. <laughs> yeah. it, and so obviously when you have those kind of statistics, it does start to feel like a bit of a conflict of interest. It does feel like the die is weighted maybe against uh, getting tenants' rights when it's not necessarily in the interests of quite a few of the people voting for it. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, I've long held this theory that the idea of a nation of homeowners is in itself a bit kind of toxic. And I was reading this article in the FT. That's right, Nish. I was at home reading the Financial Times. That's the sort of woman I am. <laughs> and Anna Minton commented. You, you, you used to go to raves. <laughs> Actually, that's you went to a rave last week. You're you just listen. She's FT in the morning. She's raving in the evening. You know, get you a host that can do both. <laughs> I amazingly can do neither. Get you a host that can do both, and another one that can do neither. This this man will not read the FT, nor will he attend and a rave. He's not going to dance. You cannot make him dance. Oh, that, that's not true. Don't make me sound like I'm one of those people from Footloose. Are you one of those people that like? Oh, I've got a bottled beer and I'm swaying. Are no, you that, I think that you dancer? would be quite surprised by the extent to... I think a lot of people would be quite surprised by the extent to which I go hard. Oh, really? Yeah. People are like, stepping back, step back, everyone. Yeah, step people back. are like, stepping back. <laughs> a, a man in his late 30s appears to have like... I, it looks like he's having a disco fit. <laughs> it is, I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying it's enthusiastic, Coco. What I will say is what I lack in ability, I make up for in commitment. Yes. And that goes for a wide variety of things. <laughs> Dancing, lovemaking, stand-up comedy. There's a huge variety of things where I compensate for a lack of basic technical well, ability with sheer know, enthusiasm. We do love a trier here. But anyway, back to me reading the FT. One of the journalists, Anna Minton, she observed that in the 1920s, a conservative thinker called Noel Skelton said, as socialism was emerging and racing through Europe, that the only way you could fight socialism was through property ownership. Right. And that's what they needed to do. They needed to put more property into the hands of more people, this transfer of wealth, to ensure that socialism never won. Right. Anyway, you know, so fast forward to 1979 when Margaret Thatcher says you can buy your council house. At that time, a third of people lived in council housing. So right. again, it was a really sort of radical big thing that happened. But the downside of that is since 40% of those council homes that were bought have now been sold onto private landlords and they rent them out at three or four times the price of an equivalent property in the social housing sector. So it's turned out to, for the people who bought it, great, but for everybody else, it's turned out to be quite bad. Yeah. And then you take that situation and then add on top of it the 2008 financial crisis and you take on top of that a decade of stagnating wages and you end up in a situation where the average rent outside London, as we said, is £1,190 per month, whilst meanwhile the average UK employee is earning a median pay of £2,200 per calendar month after tax and you end up in a situation where 50% of the money that comes into your bank account every month goes out on rent. And even if you do 
believe in this idea of a nation of homeowners. Uh, Keir Starmer this morning has been doing the rounds saying that he wants Labour to be the party of home ownership. There is this short-term problem of how on earth you're supposed to save for a house if 50% of your money also, is going on rent. There will always be people for whom home ownership is simply not a possibility. Yeah. They need consideration as well. I, I completely understand why people aspire to home ownership. <laughs> we don't have pensions. It's hard to earn money. Wages are stagnated. I get it. I get a of that. I understand why people do it. The system's broken. We want to see it fixed. But there are loads of people who will be renting for the rest of their lives. They deserve also to have some security when they're old. But anyway, oh God, I'm getting angry now. This is the other thing, just while I'm being angry, one of the things I found doing just, there was a period of time when I was writing articles on a whole range of subjects and every single one would lead back to housing. Yeah. I'd do an article about dating. Dating's really hard because people have to live with their parents. What? Yeah. You know, you're trying to write a nice fun article about bloody Tinder and you're like, oh, actually, it was the housing crisis. I remember I was working on a feel-good story about the joys of being a woman living on your own. And when I looked into the numbers, it turns out living on your own as a woman is really, really, really hard. One charity compared rents across the country in different regions. Then they looked at the average salary for a woman in those regions. And given that affordability for housing is around 30% of your salary going to housing, whether that's on your rent or your mortgage, there was no place in Britain a woman earning the average salary could afford to rent the average rental. So... So this idea of being a woman living on your own is a total luxury. And of course, that has a knock-on effect. It probably means women stay in relationships they shouldn't be in. If you consider what that means for single parents, it's really, really bleak. Yeah. And also, you know, look, it absolutely victimises lower income people and younger people. When I first lived in the private rental sector, I lived in a situation, and I shall tread carefully around this, <laughs> that can best be described as legally unorthodox. <laughs> I was uh, subletting in a legally unorthodox manner, but it meant that there were very few affordable options yeah. uh, for me. And, you know, it is, it's only a situation that's just got worse and worse and worse oh, and worse I mean, as it goes on. I feel on. like everyone of our age has got a horror story. I mean, you know me, I've grew up in council housing, I've stayed in hostels before, I've done the crappy rentals. I uh, I know a lot about rats now. What? <laughs> just an Jesus. unbelievable amount. What do you mean? Well, it's just... What, you've lived in places with just full-on rats? <laughs> oh, bruv, I've lived in many places with full-on rats. I know I, about their I, mating habits. I know all about them. Why do you know about their mating habits? <laughs> well, you have to know because it what, tells to you... to facilitate them? <laughs> Is there a time of the month that you're playing Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On so that the rats can <laughs> no, procreate? No, because then, you, then you, have, you know how long you've got to sort of fix problems, to get mesh, to do stuff because, you know, they're sort of multiplying, multiplying. I'm actually terrified of the whole rodent rodent genre. So you, even mice, you're like, no, thank you. That was yeah. You know, it's it's funny because people say, oh, there's no jobs for life left. But rat catching. Rat catching. That is one. Don't tell Suella Braverman because that will be her <laughs> aspiration for the youth of tomorrow. I see a nation of rat catchers. That will be her big pitch for the young people. And also just on that point, I actually don't think there's anything wrong with doing jobs that are manual or service. My whole family did those jobs, but you do have to pay them, Suella. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's the, that's the other. It's not, I'm not being snobby about rat catchers. You catch them rats, lads, but I hope you're getting paid properly. <laughs> the nation needs you.
<laughs> well, look, the uh, the bill that's been announced today is absolutely massively a step in the right direction. Uh, and now it's time to talk uh, to somebody who's actually been working towards this for a long time and will be able to give us some clarity on what this bill means positively and where it might have fallen short. Annie Cullum is a founding member of ACORN, a community union which organises tenants across England and Wales to stand up against unjust treatment and has been fighting for the bill as part of the Renters Reform Coalition. Hi, Annie. Hi, it's lovely to be on with you today. Big day for you, hey. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Yeah, we're so excited that we're finally seeing tenants get a step towards the justice we deserve. So the big part of the bill was the removal of the Section 21 no-fault evictions rule. Um, Can you talk us through that? What did that actually mean? So currently, landlords can evict tenants through a Section 21, which means they can serve you an eviction notice for absolutely no reason. Doesn't mean you've done anything wrong. It's not because they've had a change in their circumstances. They can just say two months, you've got to go for no reason. And what that's doing is not only causing, well, the leading cause of homelessness, but um, it's making tenants worried about standing up for their rights or complaining about problems um, in their houses, for example, damp and mould or broken appliances, because they know that their landlord might evict them in revenge. It's also stopping people from challenging unfair rent increases as well. So we recently had a case of a couple in Huddersfield who'd been complaining about problems within their home. And they were served a section 21 and told to leave on the day that their newborn baby was due to be born. And um, so that was crazy. And we've been fighting that. We've managed to keep them in the house and we're now looking at trying to get compensation for them. Um, we're currently working with a dad of two in Bristol who similarly has got a leak in the roof, mushrooms growing on the wall. Landlord won't do anything about it and it's taken pressure from the community coming together and protesting to force that through. So removing Section 21 is a huge step forward for tenants. People can't just have their home taken away from them for no reason anymore. It's amazing. I mean, the numbers are absolutely shocking. Nearly 230,000 private renters have received a no-fault eviction notice in the last three years. I mean, it's so destabilising. It works out one every seven minutes an yeah. eviction order is yeah. being served. And so the, the new bill means that that's completely taken, up, taken off the table, right? Yes. Yeah, so now, once the bill goes through, the only reason you could be evicted is either you've broken the terms of your tenancy agreement as the tenant or there's a big change in the landlord's circumstance, like they need to move in themselves or sell their house. Obviously, that's a massive win for you guys. And that's a huge credit to the campaigning Absolutely. work that you've all been doing. Um, but in terms of, are there areas of the bill that you wish had gone further? Or is it something as a piece of legislation that you're pretty happy with? We're really happy with the Section 21 bits, but what we're going to be scrutinising as this bill goes through Parliament and looking for opportunities to improve is making sure that it is watertight. I mentioned just now that um, there will be some circumstances landlords can evict tenants, for example, if they want to sell their home. What we need to make sure is that that isn't used as a loophole to continue to kick tenants out when they complain about repairs. When... Section 21 was banned in Scotland a few years ago. We've heard loads of cases of landlords just saying, oh, I'm selling my house, but then putting it back on the market again to rent. So we need to make sure that those areas are closed. 
And something that this bill doesn't do is address the affordability crisis in right. renting. Anyone renting will know just how much it's been going up in the last few years. Um, so during this bill's progress through Parliament and beyond to the next government, we're going to be campaigning for more radical measures to bring prices down. So there's been lots of coverage about sky-high rents in London, with the Mayor Sadiq Khan demanding a rent freeze. But actually, the rents have soared highest in Dundee, 33%, putting it behind only Sunderland as having the steepest increase in the UK. You're totally right that much more needs to be done to bring the rents down. So one thing that we're hoping to push for on this bill is a cap on in-tenancy rent rises, so that when tenants are given a rent rise, that can't be ridiculous. Currently, that's judged against like market rents. We think it should be judged against things like inflation or mm. average earnings and how much they've gone up. So it's actually linked to people's income. Because at the moment, you've got people who are spending 50, 60, 70% of their income on rent. And that's just not sustainable if you want to have a healthy life. Longer term than that, though, we're campaigning for more you know, council housing, social housing. And at the end of the day, we would like to see rent controls eventually. Um, but we don't think we're going to win that out of this government. So we're still really pleased <laughs> that we're getting this commitment off Section 21. But on the subject of rent controls, um, hmm. there's been a sort of six-month rent freeze in Scotland, which is, uh, you know, it feels like quite a sort of revolutionary scheme in the context of the housing market in the last uh, 10 to 13 years. The, the SNP government brought in this six-month rent freeze to help people as they were moving through this cost-of-living crisis. Uh, what have we learned from that six-month period? And is this something you think that Scotland will continue with now that the six-month period has ended? Is there, any, is there a drive to make that a more permanent measure? So I know that our sister union, um, Live in Rent, are campaigning to extend that measure more. But I do think the rent freeze is just one piece of the puzzle and it's only freezing rents and existing tenancy. So what it's not done is set how much a landlord can advertise a new home for. Right. So we've, still, we've actually seen some of the prices on new houses jump higher than they might have done before because they know that they're not going to be able to increase the rent as much once the tenant is in. So what that shows is that when you want to introduce a package of rent controls, you need to look at it holistically um, and not just tinker with one bit of the market. But I do commend the Scottish government and the campaigners up there for getting that emergency rent freeze because we really are in desperate times. And I know that it's helped thousands of tenants north of the border uh, to manage their finances during mm-hmm. the cost of living crisis. Annie, before we have to let you go, I wanted to ask you, these movements uh, around tenancies and renters, homeowners should get involved as well, right? If they believe that this system needs reform. Absolutely. Like you might not be renting yourself at the moment, but everyone knows a renter. Um, if you want to make sure that your kids or their friends have access to a safe, secure, affordable home, it's absolutely imperative that as many people get involved in this movement as possible. Um, At the end of the day, a decent home is the foundation of a healthy life. And what we've seen over the last, you know, until this has come in, is that people's ability to have a decent home has relied on the goodwill of their landlord rather than protective laws. So it's really important we all band together to make sure that having a decent home is a right and that they get protected by that in law. And it's not just based on whether your landlord's a decent person or not. Mm. Thanks so much, Annie. 
Thank you, Annie. And really? congratulations for today. Thank you. The New York Times calls BritBox the best of British telly. Stream acclaimed original series, including Payback, starring Peter Mullen, Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, and Archie, the man who became Cary Grant, starring Jason Isaacs. Plus, discover powerful new series like Three Little Birds and the return of BAFTA-winning drama Time, starring Bella Ramsey, Tamara Lawrence, and Jodie Whittaker. Stream the best of British TV only on BritBox. Start a free trial at BritBox.com. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Nish, would you like to tell us who's taking the title of Pod Save the UK's Villain of the Week? Well, I have received more correspondence about this, both from listeners of the podcast and friends of mine that listen to the podcast. Just to pick one, uh, <laughs> Daniela Graham speaks for a lot of people in my mentions and in my text messages. Uh, she tweeted at Pod Save the UK to say, Currently seeing each new national conservatism piece of horrific nonsense and wondering how on earth Pod Save the UK will be able to choose just one villain of the week. So listen, we're not going to choose one villain of the week. Our villain of the week isn't just a person, it's a movement. It's the National Conservatism's Conference, uh, which has been held in London. And it is, how to describe this event? It's uh, billed as a uh, conference about uh, conservative thought. It's Woodstock for the unfuckable. (laughs) It is a live Reddit thread. We've got some clips, actually. The ethnicity of grooming gangs and the perpetrators in those gangs is the sort of fact that has become unfashionable in some quarters, much like the fact that 100% of women do not have a penis. The normative family held together by marriage, by mother and father sticking together for the sake of the children, and the sake of their own parents, and the sake of themselves, this is the only possible basis for a safe and successful society. It all came from a recognition that there was a problem with nationalism in a German context. And that is simply a historical fact. But I see no reason why every other country in the world should be prevented from feeling pride in itself because the Germans mucked up twice in a century. Douglas Murray, who you heard from there, along with the Home Secretary Suella Braverman and Danny Kruger, uh, mucking up, uh, he seems to classify world wars as mucking up. I mean, it was, the clips from it are just absolutely terrifying. And to be clear... This at various points, uh, this conference has been happening uh, for a while and at various points it has been considered to be 
a kind of far-right event. But now, at this event that happened in London this week, we're seeing addresses from frontline Conservative MPs, Suella Braverman, Michael Gove, Jacob Rees-Mogg. Um, for US listeners, uh, the U- one of the US speakers was the US Senator J.D. Vance, who appeared uh, via live feed as a special guest. And for UK listeners wondering what he's like, J.D. may as well just stand for just dog shit just absolute <laughs> dog shit the only JD for me is JD Sports and Daniel we don't want Vance here you can clear off Vance <laughs> it, there, there were a number of serious things raised uh, at this conference uh, I mean it's all fun and games to listen to some of these absolutely deeply strange people saying they're deeply strange and uh, points at best ahistoric things but Conservative MP Miriam Cates once again used the phrase cultural Marxism and claimed it was destroying children's souls. Cultural Marxism is a conspiracy theory associated with the far right and anti-Semitic thought, which claimed that in the sort of interwar period, Marxist scholars undermined uh, Germany. And cultural Marxism is often seen as coded anti-Semitism. It, it, it is just a festival of, of chatting shit. Absolute chatting shit. Absolute chatting shit. Uh, I mean, there, there were occasional moments of insight. Michael Gove did actually observe that cultural war issues were unlikely to win the next election for the Conservative Party, which he definitely fucking needs to tell Suella Braverman about because her speech was an absolute culture war bingo. She hit all the issues. As you heard there, yeah. she once again returned to a quote unquote fact, a word which I'm using un- incorrectly <laughs> in this context, about the uh, majority of grooming gangs being men of British. Asian extraction, which her own home office's data has proved is completely incorrect. But she also hit trans issues. She said that the uh, the left are ashamed of our history and embarrassed by the sentiments and desires expressed by the British public. She talked about the fact that there should not be any collective guilt. She said the defining feature of this country's relationship with slavery is not that we practiced it, but that we led the way in abolishing it. If I run you over with my car, I don't get credit for calling 999. <laughs> That's not how That's things not work. work. <laughs> it's un- it, it, it is absolutely extraordinary. And Braverman also went on to say that the politics of grievance and division is illiberal and incompatible with social social cohesion. The motto of the NatCon conference should have been grievance and division. That's all (laughs) it was about. It was recycling nonsensical talking points from Twitter accounts that have proud dad in the bio. But the problem with this is that it is much more serious than we might have previously thought because there were frontline conservative ministers there. The person in charge of our immigration policy was there addressing this conference. And it is a really damning indictment of the current state of the Conservative Party. It was somehow simultaneously bone-chillingly terrifying and mind-numbingly dull. Absolutely. So how can we make politicians tell the truth? Do we need laws? Do we need fines? Or everyone's favourite, do we need an ombudsman? Which is a fun word. It's one of those words that I don't like to say outside of Britain. Well, ombudsman. Yeah, it's like because you would just you would think in your mind that is a man who ombuds. <laughs> That's not a word. Well, it's, well, eventually, the Marvel superheroes are going to be really scraping the barrel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're really going to be scraping the barrel when they get to ombudsman. <laughs> That's going to be that's going to be a difficult, <laughs> that's a sad difficult. Day. I don't even think Robert Downey Jr. is going to get that across the line as a fun film. 
Um, so over the next few weeks and months, uh, we're going to be picking the brains of people who have been doing the thankless task of trying to keep politicians honest, starting with the hard slog and, let's face it, often quite thankless work of fact-checkers. Yes, absolutely. And as you know, every week we like to nominate a Pod Save the UK hero. And today our hero is with us in the studio. He's someone who's dedicated himself to calling out and correcting the mistakes and mistruths of our elected representatives. So welcome to Will Moy, Chief Executive of Full Fact. Will's been trying to separate fact from fiction with the independent charity of Fact Checkers since it launched in 2010. Hello. Hello. Thank you very much. And I should stress Full Fact is very much a team effort. So possibly, possibly a team of heroes, but definitely not one. <laughs> Avengers. Okay, we can do that. We can work with that. Just give us just give us a few moments to brainstorm. <laughs> also, to be clear, that was spoken like somebody who was worried that that comment was going to be fact-checked. Afterwards, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> immediately. Will Moy, the undisputed hero of fact-checking. I would like to fact-check that. Yeah. I am not the undisputed hero. It's wildly disputed. <laughs> um, thanks so much for being with us, Will. Um, I guess like before we get into it properly, I just want to get a sense of your background and how somebody ends up being a fact checker. What was the route that led you to end up with full fact? Well, um, you start by being annoyed and then you go on to saying, what can I do about it? Oh, that sounds I think most of us have had that. Sounds that. Good. <laughs> For me, it ended up as a job. Um, so what happened was I, I left uni. I ended up working for an all-party parliamentary group on transport safety, learned a thing or two about how Westminster works there. Then I went to work for an amazing guy called Colin Lowe, who's completely blind. He uh, used to run the Royal National Institute of Blind People. He got made a member of the House of Lords, non-party political, and he needed an assistant. So I went to work for him as his human guide dog and researcher. Um, and for three and a half years, I went around the House of Lords with him, kind of amazing sight between us three years, two eyes, wandering around trying to make the law a bit better, make it more disability friendly and so on. And because he was blind, I read everything that was sent to him. And some of it was nonsense. And you know, being the researcher, my job was to figure it out. And I noticed some of that nonsense being used by serious people making really serious decisions, and that annoyed me. Um, and then Peter Oborn, who's a political journalist, um, wrote a book called The Rise of Political Lying, and he said this is actually a really big problem. It's a wide-scale problem. In the US, they have these fact-checking organizations. Why don't we have one here? And I thought that was a good idea. Turns out a bunch of other people were thinking about the same idea at the same time. I got together with some of them, particularly a guy called Michael Samuel, built up a cross-party board of trustees and Full Fact got launched and I ended up working there and then learning a lot about fact-checking the hard way, including make, making plenty of mistakes along the way. Part of your work is approaching politicians to correct the record and publish a list of them, state how long it's been since they have failed to correct it. I had a quick look this morning. Quite a lot of politicians failing to correct the record. Can I ask honestly, how often does it actually work? Um, so with politicians, uh, in the last year, I think we've asked 25 to correct the record and five of them have done it. Wow. So contrast that, right, with the media. I know, you know, we've had plenty of arguments with the press over the years. First time we needed to ask every major media outlet to correct the record. I think the slowest one took nine months. And then when they finally were pressured into correcting the record, they got it wrong and they had to print it again. But now they've improved their processes. They've improve the rules, they've changed their internal processes. And typically when we go to a national paper in this country, they will correct the record within days. 
um, and if not ours, some of them even correct the record before we've gone to them, before we published a fact check. And that's a really big change that has happened in the 12 years I've been doing this job. What we need is the same change for politicians now. And this, this thing about your opening question, how do you stop politicians lying? Do you think they want to lie to us all the time? I don't, actually. That's not been my experience. Some of them, obviously, sure. don't care, certainly on some topics. Yeah. But actually, most politicians are busy people trying to do a tough job under a lot of time pressure on a whole range of subjects, most of which they don't know anything about, and neither yeah. do their stuff. They're going to get things wrong. So the question is, why don't they correct the record when they do get things wrong? No one expects them to. And there's no kind of process for them to do it. In the House of Commons right now, if you are a member of parliament and you get something wrong, there is no process for you to formally correct the record unless you are a government minister. All the other MPs, even the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer, cannot formally correct the record when he gets something wrong. And that's amazing. And that's crazy. But even in Hansard, if you've said something at the dispatch box, there's no scope for you to correct something you've said. Exactly. You can stand up later in another debate and say, referring back to this thing I said on a, on a different day or earlier, by right. the way, it was wrong. But in terms of actually going back and saying and marking that as it was an error, it was a mistake, government ministers can do it, but no one else can do it. So wow. last year, we launched a petition to get them to change that rule. Because in every walk of life, we don't say never make a mistake. We say yeah. correct your mistakes when, when you make them, right? We tell that to six-year-olds and we should have that expectations of MPs. So we launched this petition, which you can sign at fullfact.org slash act. 44,000 people have signed it already. The House of Commons has started an inquiry into whether its corrections processes actually work and are actually up to date. And hopefully that inquiry will report this year. They will improve the processes. And suddenly there's a new expectation on politicians to actually get things right and correct the record when they don't. Am I right in thinking that there has been an uptick in dishonesty, lying, misinformation, whatever word you want to use in the last two or three years. Are we living in a golden era of bullshit? Um, reminds me of a comment the Financial Times made about a minister's response to one of our fact checks once. The Financial Times described it as a spectacular piece of bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there are certainly some special moments. Um, two caveats, because I'm a fact checker and I've got to. The first is we can't fact check what's in people's heads. We don't know if they're lying yeah. to you. That's a choice you have to make your own mind up about. The second is we don't fact check a random or representative sample of stuff. So we can't say 2013 was more or less honest or accurate than yeah. 2023 in a kind of rigorous way. What I found really interesting, I fact checked five prime ministers now, starting with Gordon Brown, just about two parties we launched in 2010. And the consistent thing about prime ministers is they don't tend to admit when they get things wrong. I think we've had one or two formal corrections from prime ministers in that entire time. They tend to quietly drop things that right. they've got wrong. So Gordon Brown, for example, first ever prime ministerial correction, he made some claims about government support for businesses, tough economic times back then. They weren't true. We challenged them on it. They kept saying it. We got a newspaper interested. They challenged them on it and they quietly dropped it. And that's what we expect to see from prime ministers. What happened that was different when Boris Johnson became prime minister is he kept saying things mm. that weren't true, that he had been told were not true. They had been told by us, they had been told by the UK Statistics Authority, which is set up by law to protect the integrity of official statistics, that he'd been challenged on in Parliament, that he'd acknowledged were not true, and he kept saying them. And when that happens, you've got two options, right? Either he's being deliberately misleading, 
or he doesn't know what's going on. And the claim he was making was that employment was going up when it was actually going down. If a prime minister doesn't know that people don't have jobs and thinks they're actually getting jobs when they're losing jobs, that's terrifying. If a prime minister is willing to mislead the country about that, that's also terrifying. That, wasn't that allegedly part of his policy? He had a mantra, didn't he? Lied and I move on. I know you can't comment on that, but I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> I think sometimes we sort of have a tendency to feel like we're living through a particularly interesting, a particularly bad age. But it does feel like with Johnson specifically... And things like the £350 million a week claim, which was on the bus and he then restated in a Telegraph article, it, it feels like with him particularly, there was a p- very casual relationship with the truth uh, at best. Or uh, at least there was a kind of, it felt like there was a kind of steady stream of mistruth coming out from him. I think, um, you know, What I've said about Boris Johnson is a clear comparison we can make, that he didn't crack the record and he kept saying things that were untrue. It certainly was a difficult time in terms of there was a lot that didn't stack up and that felt... um, It felt like there was less paying attention, less attention to detail in his approach to political communication than in a lot of other politicians of different parties. But that reference to the 350 million, the kind of standout claim of a referendum, and it wasn't true, and we explained that in great detail at the time. Um, A lot of Remainers look back on the referendum as a time when the Remain campaign told the truth all the time and was completely not misleading, and the Leave campaign just lied to the public and the stupid public got everything wrong and they voted the wrong way. My experience fact-checking that campaign in great detail was that neither side earned the trust of the public and both sides used misleading tactics, misleading claims. And it's really important, although there is this kind of sense of what's happened in history, not to write it off as a one-sided thing. Well, that's yeah. that's our concern. I mean, Nish and I were talking about it the other day and, you know, we're start- starting to detect from the Labour Party misleading, inflammatory statements that we would previously be uh, livid about coming from Suella Brabham coming from Rishi Sunak, coming from Boris Johnson. And there's this sense, oh, that's politics now. That's how you play the game. But am I right in thinking that that is a race to the bottom? That that is, you know, when you set this up, you had identified that that sort of behaviour is corrosive in a much longer, almost intangible way. Well, I don't think I'm the only one who thinks that. Actually, if you ask people what do you think are the biggest issues facing Britain today, unprompted, without a list of options to choose from, one of the top 10 things people say is lack of faith in politics and politicians. I've been saying that for quite a while now, and that's terrifying. Only about one in five of us generally trust politicians to tell the truth. So here's the problem. And they are the politicians, right? That one in five. They all work in Parliament, I believe. But this is the problem. If we all assume politicians are going to lie to us, why would they not live down to those low expectations? And so actually the challenge isn't just to point out the problem, which is we're not holding people to high standards. It's actually to raise our expectations and to recognise the people who do get it right. Those five out of 25 MPs who did correct the record when they got something wrong did something important and it probably cost them a little bit. Yeah. But it was an important thing to do. That's what we should expect I know we're talking a lot about mistakes, but I do have to just read you this uh, example that was on Full Facts website about something that Rishi Sunak said recently. Uh And that said, what do the unions and Just Stop Oil have in common? They bankroll the Labour Party. I'm sorry, Will, but I don't believe that was a mistake. (laughs) Um, So 
here's the process. We write to the Prime Minister and his office and we say, have you got any evidence for this? We yeah. go and look at the official sources. There is no evidence for it that we can find. We write to him. There's no evidence that yeah. they provide. 5,000 people, I think it was, wrote to number 10. We asked them to write to number 10 and ask the Prime Minister, either back this up or yeah. withdraw it. Mm. He has done neither. And this is my challenge then. If you won't back up what you say and you won't withdraw what you say, yeah. is that honest? Should we accept that? So, I mean, going forward, are there practical things that we can do? Are there policy changes that can be made to actually hold politicians to... I'm loathe to use the phrase that Coco has used previously on previous episodes of this podcast, which is chat shit and get banged. We would not expect you to use that language. Yeah. What are formal processes we could bring in to actually bring some accountability when a mistake goes uncorrected? Let's start with go to fullfact.org slash act, sign the petition, tell Parliament that an honest Parliament makes its MPs correct the record when they need to and has a process that allows them to do that. That is the most basic, simple thing that the House of Commons could do basically tomorrow, and we should all be demanding that of them. But then we're all voters. We have an election coming up sometime in the next 18 months, give or take, and we have the power to expect more from our candidates and hold them to account. And I think that's a really exciting time. So I've now covered 2010, 2015, 2017, 2019. I had to count them on my fingers. <laughs> so something for a fact checker. Four general elections, three referendums. Every election I've ever covered, the Institute for Fiscal Studies, the number crunchers of the budget, have said something like, neither of the two major parties is presenting an honest set of choices to the public. And that... Is mind-blowing. Not just that they could say that once, but that they could say something like that four times in a row. And the expert organisations in health are saying the same, and the expert organisations in migration are saying the same. And I am done with it, frankly. And if that is the standard manifesto we're being given, manifestos, we call them bullshit manifestos, that are about a world that doesn't exist and making promises about a world that cannot exist... What is the point of writing a manifesto? What is the point of reading it? And to be honest, I have some sympathy with people who say, what is the point of voting? So we've got to push back and expect more than that. We want to end bullshit manifestos. We want to hold parties to a standard where you've actually got to show how your manifesto adds up. You've got to make claims that are actually checkable and meaningful so that people can ultimately work out whether your promises work and whether you've implemented them in the end. There's so many lies all the time. I think it's quite hard for uh, the, the average voter to kind of keep on top of them. Now, I know that you are working on an AI solution that can deal with this. Can we hear a little bit more about it? You certainly can. So if you were... if. If, if we were sitting here and the software was turned on, what you would see is a real-time transcript of everything we are all saying. And as that transcript was being made, it would check against our database of fact checks for you repeating any claims that we already know aren't true, or indeed are true, and it would highlight those fact checks in real time. It would also identify some kinds of claims that um, our human fact checkers have never touched, but the software can fact check itself. So some things like um, a lot of statistical claims, employment has gone up since last year. It's actually quite easy for a computer to go off to relevant spreadsheets from the Office of National Statistics, get the data, download it and present it. We can do that in about half a second. 
human fact checker, that takes quite a long time to do. So what we're trying to do is carve out areas where you just cannot bullshit without being called on it instantly, either because the check's been done before or because computers are capable of doing it. And that software, um, we started working on this, I guess, in 2015. Um, It's genuinely groundbreaking. We used to have, um, when we live fact-checked BBC Question Time, which we started doing in 2011, we used to have people just typing it in in <laughs> real time so that our fact-checkers, because you've got to look at the exact words people say, right, when yeah. you're fact-checking as part of being fair to them. Um, now we have a computer doing that. We have a computer going back over our archive rather than desperately trying to remember, did we write something about that once? But that computer can only do like black and white things. It can't do the... It can't understand the context or how, you know, we were talking about the example of Suella Braverman talking about Pakistani grooming gangs. Obviously, it's a factual error, mistake, lie to say that it is a it is Pakistani grooming gangs who are responsible for the most of on street grooming. But if she were to change her language slightly and just say, we have a problem with this, we have a problem with this and not say the full picture about how actually there's a, a widespread problem of all ethnicities. A computer couldn't get that, right? It couldn't get the kind of wider context and how we hide like that, how we manipulate truths like that. No, completely. Computers are really interesting and important, particularly because politics doesn't just happen in a few newspapers and a few TV stations anymore. It happens all over the place. And understanding misinformation and disinformation at internet scale, which was a life-saving thing to do do during the pandemic, requires internet scale technology. It's got a role to play, but it's a relatively limited role because ultimately you need an intelligent human being first trying to work out the best version of what somebody's trying to say and give them credit and try Mm. to understand their argument, and second, to assess it intelligently. And you just pointed out, I think, a really important risk, which is politicians can just fluff it. Yes. They can just kind of say, I really care about X without ever really saying anything that anyone can check or believe in or trust or have any reason to vote for except a vague feeling. And that's why calling out bullshit manifestos is going to be more and more important because if people just retire to this world of vague value statements, then we're never going to get to hold them to account for anything. Is that the big mission then? Because, I mean, are you, are you worried about the next election? Just because in in the with the proliferation of social media, you know there were points in the two thousand and nineteen election where everybody was guilty of misinformation, obviously, as you said with the brexit campaign, both sides were guilty of misinformation. It seems to be something that's escalating because of the diff- wildly differing ways we all consume media information. Are you optimistic or concerned, would you say about the next election? Both. I'll tell you why I'm optimistic. 44,000 people have signed a petition to tell Parliament we expect better. Not some kind of we hate you or you're all liars, but some really specific, this is what we expect you to do better. And I think that's powerful. I know that four out of five people in this country already agree that we want politics to be more honest. Finding that voice and using it and counterbalancing the pressures of political campaigns is so important and we've started to do that. That's what makes me optimistic. What makes me concerned is that in the last 10 years, we've gone from, if you want to reach millions of people, you have to do it on the front page of a newspaper or a billboard or on the news. There has to be a journalist who can question you or your, your opponents can see it and they can challenge you. So you can do that all quietly, online, in really targeted ways where your opponents can't see it, let alone argue back. And now we're going into a new world where you can generate piles of text, images, videos, entire websites about complete nonsense, essentially for free. Now imagine 
Most people tune into an election in the last 24 hours, maybe 48 hours. Imagine you drop a whole load of nonsense into an election 24 hours before the election deliberately to reduce turnout, deliberately to get people angry, whether you're a hostile state doing that or a political party doing that or an offshore non-taxpaying person doing that. All kinds of malicious actors can drop into an election with tools they never had before. And at the same time, we've got these politicians subject to such low expectations for the public, unfairly low sometimes, looking around at how on earth do I win an election, trying more and more, I think, dodgy tactics. Um, you know, we've seen, I despise it, but we've seen um, election leaflets dressed up as if they're polling cards. We've seen election leaflets dressed up as if they're letters from the NHS. We've seen election leaflets dressed up as if they're local newspapers. Um, Eking, eating away at proper independent journalism. Those shady, deceptive campaign tactics should not be allowed and should not be accepted by any serious political party. And all of those things are happening, and they're all kind of happening at once because the old rules that used to apply don't really apply anymore. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time and your... Um your work you're doing in pursuing truth. We uh, we respect it very much. Yeah, thank you very much, Will. Thank you very much. <laughs> and let me just say one more time, fullfact.org slash act. Get involved. Amazing. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. So it's nearly time to leave you for another week. Jacqueline's uh, emailed in to us to warn us about being too English-centric, pointing out the discussion on voter OD and local elections was only relevant to England last week. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And this would seem like a good opportunity to discuss the fact that Northern Ireland is going to the polls this Thursday. Uh, so uh, the day the podcast is released uh, for the first local elections in four years, there's a total of 462 seats up for grabs in all of Northern Ireland's 11 councils. And that is particularly important at a time where Stormont remains in a kind of freeze due to protests over the uh, Brexit agreements. So it's uh, all eyes will be on Northern Ireland uh, over the next week. So in previous episodes, we've been querying why voter ID was brought in in the first place in England when there is no evidence of electoral fraud taking place. So imagine our surprise, dear listeners, when none other than Jacob Rees-Mogg openly admitted this week that the reforms were an attempt to boost the Conservative Party's support. 
Parties that try and gerrymander end up finding that their clever scheme comes back to bite them. As dare I say, we found by insisting on voter ID for elections, and we found that the people who didn't have ID were elderly, oh, and they by and large voted Conservative. So we made it hard for our own voters, and we upset a system that worked perfectly well, was one of the glories of our country, actually. Uh, that was one of the few lucid things that were said at the NatCon conference. Um, the Labour MP Dawn Butler described Rhys Mogg's comments as deeply concerning and suggested that she might have to report them to the Parliamentary Standards Authority or the police. Well, I mean, as we have been talking about on this show, if she does report them to the Parliamentary Standards Authority, can we be sure that, it, that it, they are going to take action? This is why we need other processes. Those are the two options, police or Parliamentary Standards Authority. And there's got to be something in between. But anyway. We move on. We've had some nice correspondence uh, from a listener uh, called Catherine, and I'm pretty sure this is exclusively aimed at you, Coco. <laughs> oh, right. Love the podcast. Just wanted to let you know that I saw a movie advert for Showgirls, confirming that the film is both iconic and extremely highbrow. Also, thank you for reminding me <laughs> of the existence of E17. And then uh, Catherine goes on to say, hoping to see the Tories out, the monarchy abolished, and that everything will be all right, all right, everything's going to be Aww. all right. You really should have sang that. I don't think anybody needed to hear me sing E17. I did see Showgirls pop up on Mubi. Oh, Mubi's, did you? E- Mubi's exactly the kind of app that I am subscribed to. <laughs> it's like, it's basically like hipster Netflix. Like it's uh, it's independent foreign language and art house film streaming service. And they added Showgirls to their library <laughs> as a kind of misunderstood cult classic. Amazing, yeah. amazing. Just on the subject, because I was thinking about this the other day. I was thinking about like when I was in my 20s, I had really good taste. I would like listen to like felonious monk should we all gather around friends and try some tarkovsky and now i just watch fast and the furious that's all i watch i saw a bus go past the other day with fast x and i was like the last one they put a car in space what where can they possibly go and do you know what i think my theory is what? i think the tories made me dumb i i, I wow See, you're blaming Sweden for sealing Eurovision and the Conservative Party for making you dumb. I'm doing a lot of baseless Do you uh, think, accusations you, so today. Let me just try and quickly wrap my mind around this. Are you saying because of the um, sort of mismanagement of the economy and mismanagement of public finances yes. and the sort of 13 years of stagnation and underinvestment, you've been, as a journalist, so forced to deal with consistent and constantly moving serious news stories that you don't have the brain space to engage with high art and it's left you in a place that you can only enjoy can only Eurovision watch, and the Fast and the Furious. I can only watch Ludacris. That's it. That's all I've got left. I'm emotionally spent. I'm mentally broken from 13 years of this government. And now all I keep thinking when I'm on the bus is like, maybe maybe in the next Fast and the Furious, someone will be born a car. <laughs> That's where I'm at. But anyway, thank you so much, Catherine, for emailing us. And if you want to get something off your chest, please do get in touch with us. You can email psuk at reducelistening.co.uk or you can even send us a voice note on WhatsApp if that's the kind of thing you like to do. Our number is 07514 644 Internationally, that's plus four four seven five one four six four four five seven two. Don't worry if you haven't written it down, it will be in the show notes. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please rate and please review it on your podcast platform. Yes, please rate it because we got a one-star rating before we'd done a podcast. (laughs) My girlfriend pointed that out to me. She was like, 
You've got a one-star rating. We haven't even done an episode. I guarantee you that was because of you. That was someone who hated you and was like, I don't like that Nish Kumar one-star. Guarantee it wouldn't have been me. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, Coco. I'm the nation's sweetheart. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next week. Pod Save the UK is a reduced listening production for Crooked Media. Thanks to senior producer Musty Aziz and digital producer Alex Bishop. Video editing was by David Kaplovitz and the music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Thanks to our engineer, David Degahi. The executive producers are Louise Cotton, Dan Jackson and Michael Martinez. Watch us on the Pod Save the World YouTube, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Pod Save the UK. And hit subscribe for new shows every Thursday on Apple, Spotify, Amazon or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. 